folks. Just a quick note. We are going to talk about the long goodbye today on You Love to See It. And just a quick content warning for suicide. It's a plot point that does come up in the discussion. Just so you know, it's a quick content warning for suicide. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to You Love to See It, the podcast where we watch TV shows and movies and then tell you all about them. I'm your host, Merritt K. Features and trending editor of Fanbyte.com. And joining me this week is Fanbyte's uh, editor-in-chief, Danielle Riendo. Hi, hello. Cat food. Hello. Cat food, baby. Curry brand uh, cat food. And that other voice you're hearing is, of course, Fanbyte managing editor, Stephen Strom. Hi, my cats usually prefer more of a fancy feast, usually the kind of the pâtés is oh. what they demand. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know what? It's all right with me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it is. Good. It is. It is okay with me. And uh, so this week we are watching what is possibly my favorite movie of all time. It's definitely in the top five. There's some others kind of bouncing around up there on any given day. But it is the 1973 American neo-noir thriller uh, directed by Robert Altman and based on the novel of the same name by Raymond Chandler, The Long Goodbye. Not the big goodbye, as uh, uh, Danielle sometimes renders it, but it's easy to see why you would get that confused because Chandler also wrote The Big Sleep. And that was made into a film starring Lauren Bacall and Humphrey Bogart which is also very interesting, and maybe we'll do that yeah. some other time. This film, though, stars Elliot Gould call. as the lead Philip Marlowe and features Sterling Hayden, Nina Van Pallant, Jim Bouton, Mark Rydell, and uh, a surprise early <laughs> and uncredited appearance by Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> yeah, that was a thing I had to rush to Google as soon as I saw him yes, on screen. Yeah, right? <laughs> we did the same thing the first time I saw yep. this movie. Um, so the long goodbye is initially, uh, was started off as a noir by Raymond Chandler, part of his Philip Marlowe series of books that follow Marlowe around as this kind of, um, PI who is very much in the same vein as like your Sam Spades, um, and the other kind of hard boiled guys at the time. Although I will say Marlowe is much weirder than the other PIs of that period. There's a part in the big sleep where he's, uh, He's like kidnapped by criminals who catch him snooping or something. And he's like tied up to a chair and um, they're like threatening him. And he's like, oh, what are you going to do? Are you going to cut me up and bury me? Please don't bury me. I don't want to be eaten by the worms. Did you know that worms are all sexes and any worm can have sex with any other worm? And it's just like, who are you? Um, So the setting of this film was moved from the late 40s to 1970s Hollywood And the film has been described as a study of a moral indecent man cast adrift in a selfish, self-obsessed society where lives can be thrown away without a backward glance and any notions of friendship and loyalty are meaningless. So just to kick things off, I guess, what's everyone's familiarity with the work of Robert Altman? 
So for me, it was a film school thing. Uh, And we all sort of uh, did at least scenes from The Long Goodbye, mostly as a study in Robert Altman's general style and also his use of overlapping dialogue and like very sort of naturalistic sound. So many scenes are like multiple people talking and they don't feel very... Like, to use a really contrived term, they don't feel super filmy. They feel a lot more like, oh, you're in the mm-hmm. room and you might hear a bunch of things. So, yeah, I watched this. I watched MASH, the movie, um, a couple of others, I think. So I'm kind of familiar with him in the, like, survey class kind of way, but not like, oh, I've seen all of his movies or anything like that. Um, As far as I go, I just looked up his filmography right before we did this and realized, I don't think I've ever seen a single movie that Robert Altman has ever made. <laughs> Until uh, today. <laughs> you know Until what? today. Uh, you know what? This, I think, is the only one um, that I've seen, which I need to change because Robert Altman, really interesting guy and uh, really kind of wild director. He started as a, uh, he started in TV and then in yep. middle age, he moved into doing movies and he, his films are all kind of these like variations on like existing themes. Like people, there were noir movies at the time already. Um, but The Long Goodbye is in many ways like, like that quote, um, kind of an attack on a society um, that's the sort of like horrible underbelly of it is revealed by the existence of like this one upstanding guy. And so a lot of his stuff is kind of like that. And um, he was, a lot of people, a lot of really famous actors credit him with, credit his work with their decision to go into acting. Um, So Julianne Moore, I believe, said that uh, she decided to go into film instead of stage um, because of him. Uh, Cher was, uh, credits him with launching her career with uh, Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. yeah. Uh, which has an interesting link with uh, one of my other favorite movies, which is uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two, <laughs> um, uh, because another Twitter avatar. Into, because Mark Patton is uh, is in that movie as well. Um, who was the? I guess to give that a tiny bit of background, who uh, was the? He's a young. <laughs> Gay dude, and you know, uh, there's a great documentary called Scream Queen that goes way into that kind of yes. history. So there's like a lot of good connective that. tissue. Highly recommend that. It does. Yeah. Robert Altman is like brought up a little bit in that. Um, it's not really about him though. But yeah, um, yeah. Also, many of his films involve improvisation and, ter- and dialogue. So a lot of the the conversations in this movie between um, Marlo and uh, what's the uh, uh, what's the Hemingway guy's name again? Roger Wade. This oh guy who is like pretty clearly a Hemingway XP. Um, most <laughs> yeah. of those, Roger Wade? Yes. Yeah, yeah, Wade. Sorry, most I was going to say uh, whale and I knew I was wrong. So. <laughs> most of <laughs> those conversations in the film were ad-libbed um, because Sterling huh. Hayden was uh, high a lot of the time. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. But that's a common thing in his films and so you get this energy that's like, if you're expecting kind of like an American film, the dialogue can feel kind of jarring. And I think it can almost feel kind of like cheap or like poorly done, but it it's not, it's like a deliberate decision to do something different, yeah. which very I think conversational, it, very conversational, uh, a lot of back and forth. Phil, um, 
Elliot Gould in this movie is just like, oh my god, he's his presence is unreal. Um, the car, the conversations he has, he always have a has a line. He's like this guy that is just so magnetic, but at the same time, so just like nothing. And that to me is yeah. such really a dipshit. <laughs> He's a dipshit, like he's but he's such a, a dipshit like, who really charming, who's charming kind of Mister Magoo, like dipshit. Right. Like he keeps falling into success, even though he's obviously a lot smarter than he kind of comes across, and that's clearly how he kind of is successful. Like there's just this sense that he just falls into shit all the time. You're just like, well, there you are <laughs> about basically he, everything. He's like a dark Columbo sometimes, is what he feels yeah. like. Yeah. <laughs> Has a very similar yes. kind of energy and not exactly look, but he does have like a uniform the way that Columbo also does. Uh, yeah. where, right. Which becomes like a sticking point in this movie that he's always wearing this black suit, no matter what mm-hmm. he's doing or where he is, and refuses to take it off even when somebody threatens to cut his dick <laughs> off. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So um, the suit is important to the character because when they moved this movie to the setting of 70s Hollywood, they kept Marlowe essentially the same as he was in the original story. So he's like out of another era. Um, The movie starts off with him waking up and Altman actually nicknamed the character Rip Van Marlowe. Um, So (laughs) the film basically starts and it's kind of like he's been asleep for like 20 years and then wakes up and is just like, is like, what is, what is happening? Like I, I, he doesn't understand the world at all, but he's like trying to just sort of accept it. And in many ways he's like the stoic kind of figure and kind of like a Taoist figure, too, in that he just yeah. knows how much he doesn't know. Um, and at the same time is like really just like kind of like water. He flows through this movie in a way that is so unlike most PIs or like most like traditional male leads, I feel like, where he doesn't actually do that much in this movie. <laughs> like until the very end, he, yeah, he's investigating stuff, but he's mostly just like in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, and things just kind of happen around him and he's sort of pushed around. And at no point does he really like fight back and get like in people's faces because he knows that it wouldn't help the situation. Um, right. So he's a loser. He's a drifter, but he also is like this really interesting, um, kind of like sexless yeah uh, yeah like relic and um i think when i first watched this movie i found that so compelling uh and i still do but this is a this is a mild tangent but it's about the character it's like there was no maybe this information is out there already i should have looked it up before i started this but it just kind of occurred to me a few minutes ago but there's no way that Spike Spiegel from Cowboy Bebop is not oh, based no, on this is. version. Oh, he is. Oh, he 100% sure. is, okay. is, yeah. Perfect, um, okay. <laughs> yeah, so fans of Cowboy Bebop uh, who are familiar with the Spike Spiegel character, uh, I mean, bring if you haven't seen this movie, bring up a picture of, uh, you know, Elliot Gould in The Long Goodbye, and just from the hair to, like, the, the suit, um, and just sort of the general vibe. It's, yeah, he's, his, like, he's movement very style. Marlowe. Mannerisms, yeah. yeah so Marlowe... Uh, walks around in this uh, full suit, drives a car that's like from the 50s. And um, (laughs) just his whole like mode of being like, so one thing is that this is like 70s Hollywood. So there's like a lot of woo kind of stuff. And everyone's like, you know, serious about fitness and health. And he's constantly smoking through this entire movie. (laughs) Inside of hospitals, uh around other people. Yeah. uh He's just like so worn down. Um, 
and just looks so like he's kind of falling apart as this movie goes on. But the contrast between him, just even the visual contrast and like the girls he lives across the <laughs> apartment from uh, who are like these like young, like fitness obsessed, like drug using hippies basically often topless ladies yeah (laughs) and he's just like yeah it's all right with me ladies like uh brownie mix all right yeah i'll give you some brownie mix and like (laughs) any other character would just be like wow look at those yabos check out these gazangas and he just like doesn't care yeah several other characters do comment on it right he's like the only character never once he doesn't like look at them in a weird way he never talks to them in a weird way he just like yeah it's 3 a.m i'll get you some weird groceries whatever i don't care put it on my fucking bill like don't even pay me back for it i don't know you see my cat yeah (laughs) right so he's always looking for the cat that's That's like uh, the cat moves the plot forward in a hilarious way (laughs) yeah um so we can just like run through the the synopsis sure. pretty quickly, I yeah. think. Um, so Marlo wakes up at three in the morning because his cat is hungry. And the first scene of this movie is between him and his cat. And like, it's so funny looking back at that now in like a post save the cat kind of era, because you're immediately <laughs> endeared to this character as someone yes. who is like talking to his cat and then trying to like make some bizarre like meal for his cat. Out of his and uh, uh, my my first note in my notebook here is literally Marlo feeding his cat makes me instantly relate to him. <laughs> right? Yes, yeah, exactly. he's woken up at three in the morning, and um, <laughs> like the kind of people who would watch this movie now and be like, "Oh, I relate to this guy." I kind of wonder in the seventies, like who is watching this movie and being like, "Yeah, I've been there. We've all been there." <laughs> Right, I'm sure yeah. some people, but I don't know if it's like as. So many. there's like, a funny quote. I mean, this is just from the Wikipedia, so this is not like a deep cut or anything. But apparently, the opening scene with Philip Marlowe and his cat came from a story uh, that, like, a friend of Altman's told him about a cat only eating one type of cat food, and Altman apparently <laughs> saw it as a comment on friendship. Yeah, so that's like why he put it in the movie. I love that. It's so lovely. The the cat is. <laughs> Not his only friend, but one of his very few friends uh, in this movie. There's uh, a really great line when he goes to the grocery store to go get the cat and or to go get the cat food. The curry brand cat food specifically is the one he has to mm -hmm. get. And he talks to like a grocery clerk asking them and they say they're out of the food or whatever. And he says like uh, the guy's like, just buy any other kind of cat food. It's fine. And he's like, you don't have a cat, do you? And he's like, why do I need a cat? I got a girl. He says like, (laughs) yeah, you got a girl. I got a cat. Yeah, (laughs) It's like. Uh, immediately sets up like his entire life situation for like mm-hmm. you in terms of like what ties he has to other people on top of the fact that like the other character we know is his friend and I this really now that I know about the Rip Van Marlow thing too they ask him repeatedly how long have you known um Terry um and he just says long time like before co- like I didn't go to college it was before then doesn't say like a grade doesn't say like where mm-hmm. they met never says anything it's always just this vague like long time known him a long time yeah mm-hmm. Yeah, and it just creates this like weird sort of sense. Again, it like feeds into the timelessness, and it also feel it feeds into like this whole sense of like him being a character that doesn't have any like real ties. The ties are like two other people are so surreal and sort of like you know distant in various ways, except for him and his cat, who he'll do anything for. It's yeah, beautiful. <laughs> so yeah, yeah he. <laughs> He can't find the Curry's brain cat food, so he comes home, locks the cat out of the kitchen, uh, <laughs> takes an empty Curry's cat food can, puts the new cat food into it, closes it, and then lets the cat in and then pretends to like open it and pour it out to try and trick this cat. And um, the cat turns his nose up at it and runs out. Um, 
the uh, the cat door, which is a strip of cardboard that's just like uh, Porto del Gato, like a piece of cardboard <laughs> over a broken like window. Um, and the cat's then the cat's gone. And like the whole movie is sort of, you know, he's kind of he's always like sort of looking for his cat. Uh, and everyone is just like, what the fuck? Why are you, what do you care about this cat? People are dying and stuff. And he's like, I just want my cat back. Uh-huh. Like the, the cops pick him up. They like the d- deeply corrupt, shitty, violent, bigoted cops pick him up because yep. that's also like a thing. I don't know Robert Altman um, at all, but um, I have read at least The Big Sleep and I'm a big fan of The Continental Op, which I think is like a mm. very good companion detective um, mm-hmm, from this mm-hmm. era from Dashiell Hammett. Um, and one of the kind of through lines with a lot of that stuff that I really appreciate and I think has only aged better now is that cops in these stories are always the fucking worst, like just the dirt of the society and suck and are ineffectual and uh, provide nothing. And um, during that whole conversation, they like basically pr- uh, fake a uh, police assault, like uh, Marlowe mm-hmm. um, beating, a, beating a cop when they come and harass him in his house. So they they can arrest him, and uh, the entire time that they're interrogating him, they're asking him questions, and he's just describing the twelve minute scene at the beginning of the movie where he's getting cat food, and they're like, yeah. "Enough about the fucking cat!" <laughs> right. So the cops are after Marlowe because um, after he gets back from getting the cat food, his friend Terry shows up and says that he's gotten into a fight with his wife, and that he. Uh, needs Marlo to take him to uh, Tijuana. Yeah. Which is not that far because we're in LA. So uh, Marlo does it. And then on the way back, um, these two cops show up and accuse Terry of having murdered Sylvia, his wife. And uh, that sets up kind of the whole movie where Marlo does not believe the official line that uh, Terry Lennox killed his wife and then killed himself. And he's trying to figure out what's going on. Hence, he does a bit of detective work as the the PI that he, you know, sort of supposed. He does a, is. a little bit yeah. of detective little, work. Just in <laughs> touch. <laughs> while this is happening, um, Marlo is hired by Eileen Wade, who is the wife of this character, who is essentially Hemingway. Uh, yeah. He looks like Hemingway. He acts like yeah. Hemingway. Like he's an XP of Hemingway, essentially. Um, and he's tasked with finding him, and it turns out to be he's in this like recovery place for rich drug addicts and uh, and alcoholics, and um, finds out that uh, the Wades knew the Lennoxes, and so tries to investigate. They lived like there. in the same. They lived they in, the, lived in yeah, like the same community. They lived right? on the yeah. beach. Um, although it becomes right. clear later on that they knew each other a little better than that. Um, yeah. Yeah. But while this is happening. <laughs> uh, Marty Augustine shows up and (laughs) Marty Augustine is one of the wildest characters in this movie. Uh, I mean, he's a monster. Oh yeah. And at the same time, his presence is just so intense and like charismatic that you're like, Oh, I forgot that you just slashed open your mistress's face to just prove a point. Yeah. Um, he he's like going on and on about how and that's another you know that's a thing about philip marlowe stories is they often take place like marlowe is a character who um is bumping heads with like the kind of upper class of american society and various versions of them and they're all just fucking 
like insects of people yeah and marty is one of those too because he's just like constantly talking about how like i have my own i've got three acres i live in three acre house i got a private tennis court i take lessons 12 times a day that's why i'm in peak physical condition Mm -hmm. and all this stuff that he's talking about um and which ultimately culminates in a scene later on the one i alluded to earlier where like he basically makes everybody strip down to like show off their like naked bodies to each other to like show that they have nothing to hide um he's a like you said, he is a monster, but yeah, he is just, he is a really good, ex- like, even the criminals, like, the, the like, dirty, shitty people um, in this movie, who would often be, like, we would have a scene in, I think, a lot of detective movies where it's like, ah, he goes to the bad part of town, and this is where he runs into the gangs for five minutes, and, like, there's some kind of, like, bl- like weird racial stereotype, whereas instead here, like, the shitty criminal people even they are like rich assholes who um, basically get off by showing their superiority or their perceived power over like women and other people throughout the movie. Mm, yeah. mm-hmm. um, so a thing about Marty Augustine that's kind of weird is that it's suggested that he is Jewish. He has this star of David necklace. Um, and so he's kind of this like Jewish hood. Um, and at the same time though, Elliot Gould is actually jewish um (laughs) and uh you know the marlowe character previously was uh humphrey bogart and that sort of um like humphrey bogart is like legendary obviously but a big part of noir is this identification with like an emasculated man who like you know post-war has no place in society and it's sort of like a lot of noir characters the traditional ones i think like you know, a lot of young white men can pick up those books and be like, yeah, this guy fucking rules. He's so cool. Uh, and in this movie, first of all, I mean, he's a fucking like loser. Uh, and so he's not, <laughs> you're not supposed to like idolize him, but also yeah. like he's Jewish. Like he is kind of racialized and uh, whether or not Marlo is supposed to be, it doesn't really matter because um, he's being played by this guy, uh, Elliot Gould. And that kind of disrupts that a little bit, I think. Um, yeah. In a way that adds like another layer onto it. Um, also. And there's also no. Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, Elliot Gould kind of went on to play a character sort of like Marty Augustine, except with minus like the face slashing uh, <laughs> in the yeah. Oceans movies when he plays right. uh, Ruben Tishkoff. He's kind of the same sort of guy. Yeah, he's sort of like a career criminal, but like lovable. You know, he's like the right. he's a friend to the Ocean's Eleven, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Without the bottle part. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> which helps uh, a lot, I think. I was going to say structurally, this is such a like subversion of noir as well, because mm-hmm. uh, and it's not only uh, our lead being kind of a, a dork that you don't necessarily immediately uh, have that sort of like every man blah 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 uh, association with, but also because there's not exactly a femme fatale. Like there, you could make the argument certainly for Mrs. Wade, but not exactly. Like not the really femme fatale always like fully disempowers the man in like your classic noir. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's always about you know the the uh, Mrs. Dietrich or or whoever, like the hottest woman you can imagine who completely emasculates the dude. Like that's always what happens and that doesn't happen here obviously they have like hot women in the movie but it's there's no like femme fatale who is like the powerful woman who does the thing it's not really like that like most things about this movie are a subversion of the sort of previous genre which is 
really interesting and really fun, and I think a great choice, because at this point in the early 70s, noir was almost kind of played out. Like, noir's heyday Mm. was the 40s, 50s, like, early 60s. Like, Sunset Boulevard, which is, like, one of my favorite noir movies of all time, is itself, like, a subversion of a lot of noir tropes. Like, movies were already, like, 10, 13 years before that already kind of having the more interesting take on its own genre. So to make this such a, frankly, like almost satire at some level or mm-hmm. a sad satire mm-hmm. almost, I think there's a Altman quote about it being a satire and melancholy, which I love. Like what a great mm. fucking idea. Like, he's so quotable too. He's a brilliant man. So, <laughs> you know, he's, he's fucking awesome. But yeah, there, there's something about that that I love. That it is both, it, it feels very dangerous and very sad, but also very funny. And there's something really, really compelling about that mixture in this movie that works as a subversion of the genre that it's kind of playing in. Yeah. Uh, and it, like, you know, circling back to the beginning of this with the like kind of um, talk about how it undercuts like the man's man's thing. Constantly throughout this movie, everybody, like every, and it's mostly men, I think. I don't think that maybe, mm-hmm. maybe like one or two women comments on it, but like everybody's talking about how pretty Elliot Gould is in this movie. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. He's a real cutie pie. <laughs> He's a real cutie pie. It's yeah. like, you know, I hate to say this, especially because of your profession, but you, like the, the, the Hemingway characters, like says, like, oh, but yeah. you got a real pretty face, you know? <laughs> and they're like, just guys being dudes, just drinking yeah. on the beach. Uh, <laughs> And talking Dang, about how pretty, pretty they are. God, he is so hot in this movie. He is he so is. fucking hot. It's impossible. It's, it's disgusting. <laughs> um, the Every time he has a cigarette in his mouth, it's just like, God damn it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, the Marty Augustine uh, character is kind of this, this threat. Um, you know, once the police let up on Marla because they believe that uh, uh, Terry killed himself, uh, we sort of get... Marty Augustine coming in with his gangsters who include Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> and uh, because they believe doing the dance with his pecs he does the yes, pec dance yeah. they believe that he has the money that um, that Terry was holding for him or that he and Terry are working together to scam him and uh, this character actually there's a character in a much more recent film that I feel like is has the same exact energy and it's um, Eric Bogosian's character in Uncut Gems, um, mm, Arno sure. Moradian, yeah. the Lone Shark guy. Yeah, uh, yeah. Who's constantly after Adam Sandler. This is like yeah. the same vibe. Just like the same, like this guy shows up with like a bunch of goons and he's like, I need my money. I'm going to do a new swimming pool. I need my money. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, Augustine is is such a weird guy because yeah, he's really scary, but then he does like some very bizarre shit. Like uh, the second time that he, he calls Marlo up, he does this whole speech about how like he because in the first scene he he slashes his mistress's face to be like that's someone i love you i don't even like um to like show what he could do to him and then afterwards he's like i realized i hadn't been fair to her and so what i did was i went into the the hospital room and took all of my clothes off and said i have nothing to hide i'm sorry (laughs) and then he's like yeah then he's like like I want you to take all your clothes off and tell me the truth. And then he's like, everyone take all your clothes off. And you just have everyone like... Guys being dudes. Yeah, Yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger takes all of his clothes off, (laughs) except his underwear, and he's just making everyone strip. Um, 
Except for Pepe, his uh, one of his goons, his, yeah. who's like, oh right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's like, oh, I don't want to do that. I've got too many scars. He's like, that's okay. You go out. You handle the phones. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's bizarre. It's like so strange. Um, just like this man's weird whims. He's so wealthy and powerful that everyone just listens to him. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, so there is a, a scene in between that. I guess we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves, but um. He, uh, Marlo goes to Mexico to, to find out what happened to Lennox and talks to these officials who uh, say that, uh, that he definitely killed himself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> In the most unconvincing manner. Yeah. Yeah, oh, don't real. worry. He super killed himself. It's fine. <laughs> don't worry about We're it. We're definitely not lying. We're not lying. We're very good No at other this. explanation. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're kind of like, those two characters are maybe some of the, uh, besides Marlo, some of the nicest people in this movie too. They're just mm-hmm. like weird sort of like definitely for sale public officials slash cops in this in in this Mexican town, this small Mexican town, but also they're just like having these like kind of they put up with Marlo's bullshit and his one liners mm-hmm. way more than anybody else in the movie it's and are true. just kind of there for it. In a way that they find like, him amusing. Yeah, yeah. They kind of find him sort of weirdly charming. It's like, all right, okay, bro. Yeah. They're no. more in on the bit. Yeah. 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 yeah absolutely. Um so Marlo comes back to California, finds out that uh they're, uh, Roger and um, his wife are having this party and then the doctor that was treating him shows up and is like, where's my money? Because everyone in this movie just wants their money. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, later that night, Roger uh, kills himself by walking into the ocean. And Eileen confesses that he had been having an affair with Sylvia and might have killed her. Yep. This is Sylvia like a being... big... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Sylvia being Terry's wife. I, I can't remember yes. if we said that or not. Yes, yeah. yeah. This is just such and, a huge reveal. And, like, information in this movie is given in so many different ways. Like, mm-hmm. a lot of times it is almost random. Uh, there's a really early scene. It's, like, very famous for all that overlapping dialogue where, you know, Marlo just finds out about his friend, like, in mm-hmm. the police station. And it's just, yeah. like, he just kind of walks out. Like, it's just like, oh, my God. This is framed so differently. Uh, at, like, this is maybe one of the most Hollywood-ish feeling bits of this movie because it's like here it is like here's a reveal uh, a little bit which is also interesting i think it's also the only time we see like marlo really lose it in this movie because he yeah. gets drunk he gets drunk drunk he's not just drinking um yeah. and he like he digs this information out of her after she's just watched her husband like take his own life in front of both of their eyes as they like run into the ocean trying to get him back the dog yeah. follows them like grabs the cane out of the ocean cuz it doesn't know what else to do yeah. and all this like very sad stuff like he bullies away the cops who are questioning her <laughs> to protect like to protect her from that like emotional trauma of that and then he just immediately rails on her just like hey what the fuck like what the fuck is going on and he's like screaming this like vital information around all of these people on the beach that where everyone can hear it and whatnot nobody's like really paying any attention because it's this weird sort of almost liminal space that just it feels like it's private even though it's not in this very strange way because this is just mm. a very strange movie in a lot of ways and you know, he's just like, they were having an affair. Like, do you think that he might have killed her? Do you think he might have killed her? They like six feet away from cops mm-hmm. who <laughs> yeah. should care about this information and just do not give a shit because they're all just dirtbags. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
that whole scene is is kind of wild. And it ends, I think, crucially with one of my favorite shots of the whole movie, which is Marlo wearing a blanket, drunk, walking away from the cops, talking about how he's going to call Ronald Reagan to go <laughs> like, fire the cops. It says, oh, you fucking pigs deserve to die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so good. Very Again, good. parts of this movie seem like they have aged very well. Yeah. Yeah, um, no, I mean, I think a lot of... I think this movie, like, Altman was, uh, like, a leftist and, like, anti-war yeah. activist. Mm. Um, and uh, I think a lot of that, that shows in this movie of just, like, yeah, Marlowe is a PI, so, like, technically he's kind of a cop, but the cops like fucking suck and that's not true of yeah. all noir like in some noir yeah. yeah the cops are really shitty in some of them the pi um can work with like at least one of them yeah. uh in some they have like a decent relationship often there is this thing of the pi being able to like do things that the cops can't in this sort of uh creepy extrajudicial way but the sherlock holmes model sometimes often, yeah like especially in modern versions right um but in this case it's just that the cops do not care about justice, essentially. No. Uh, as far as they're concerned, the case is closed. And uh, Marlo, crucially, is the only one who cares about uh, about what happened, as we look like is famously spoken in the final scene. But um, so basically, he realizes, okay, something is something is up, and um, he uh, it goes back to Augustine, whose money has been returned mysteriously. Um, mm. Marlo uh, gets hit by a car. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's, he's chasing after. He sees um, Eileen leave the building, which implies yeah. that she's the one who dropped off the money. Right. And then he chases after her and gets hit by another car while he's chasing her. Yes. Uh, he wakes up in a hospital and goes back to Malibu and finds that the Wade house is for sale and that Eileen isn't there. And so he goes back to the only place... Uh, he can think, which is Mexico, and he learns the truth by uh, by bribing them with five thousand um, no, dollars. Well, it's not a bribe; it's a it's a charity. It's a donation. Ch- it's a charitable yeah. gesture. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, uh, and they're like, "How did he, how did the he said what does he say? Because uh, it's a James Madison. It's a five thousand dollar bill, so it has right. James Madison yeah. on it, which is a real thing. I had to find out." Oh, um, nice. And then he says, like, I want to introduce you to my friend James Madison. And they're like, uh, he asks them, like, how did he pay you? How did Terry pay you to fake his own death? Because yeah. that's what we learn. And they're like, uh, he gave us uh, $5,000 as well. And he says, ah, yes. So uh, you're familiar with Mr. James Madison. And they say, like, yes, we've been acquainted once before. <laughs> we've met him before. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just like, they are so in on his specific brand of shit in a way no one else in this movie is. And I just love all their scenes. It's very brief, but it's so good. No, absolutely. Those guys are great. Um, So yeah, Marlo tracks uh, Terry down and uh, Terry sort of gives him the rest of the story, which is that uh, he's having an affair with Eileen. Roger had discovered the affair uh, and told Sylvia and then Terry killed Sylvia during an argument um, and used Marlo basically to get out of it. And that last, I, I don't even want to really summarize that scene because it's so good. Yeah. And you can look it up. It's like yeah. two minutes. But uh, <laughs> it's like needless to say, um, Terry ends up dead. Marlo walks away and passes Eileen, who is on her way to go meet <sighs> the now dead Terry. Yep. 
At which point, like, I know, don't want to get too deep into specifics, but in the hospital, his roommate in the he hospital gets the gives harmonica. Him, yeah. Uh-huh, yeah. A miniature harmonica, and he just, like, the movie ends with him just playing it in his mouth as he walks into the sunset and credits roll. As oh, one so of the two songs in this movie play, uh, which is <laughs> Hooray for Hollywood, I believe it's called. Yeah. Um, uh, is that what the, the song is? I think called? so. Yeah, Hooray for Hollywood, and uh, also The Long Goodbye which was written by John Williams. Oh, and, was it? Yeah. <laughs> so Jesus, okay. But yep. it was Altman's idea to have the every time that song plays for it to be a different variation. So mm. when Marlowe goes into the supermarket, it's playing as like music. Um when he uh at the beginning of the film when uh Terry is driving to meet him, it's playing in this dramatic kind of radio version. And I think there's like nearly 10 different versions of the song yeah. in this movie. Um, and it's, yeah, that that's like two, two songs. <laughs> um, Hooray yeah, for Hollywood at the beginning and at the end. Yeah. 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 Uh, which is uh, a really strong choice. I feel like. Yeah. And it's, it's always diegetic. I, sh- I don't think we yes. said necessarily um, like, and nobody comments on it, which just continues to kind of, play into the sort of dreamlike and oh my God, yes. nature of the movie. That's so that's what I kind of wanted to get at is to me, like my ideal movie feels like a dream, like and movies yeah. that don't, that aren't that I enjoy them too. Like straight up comedies. Um, I enjoy those sometimes. I like all kinds of movies, but the movies that I like really, really hold on to are movies that just feel like just the, like confusing and meaningful and weird, like a dream. Yeah. yeah, and this movie is so much like that. From the like the echoing song everywhere that no one comments on, to just the you know the transitions between scenes, to the fact that it starts at like three in the morning and he's just like getting woken up and uh, yeah, kind of lives in this weird. Like, There's also that idea world. of like he's um, we have woken up about his by... apartment. Yeah. Oh my god. Yes. Yes. His true. apartment, which is like. In this structure, there's like two apartments and it's like on a hill and you have to take this rickety elevator to get up to it. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like the weirdest looking building. Um, it's, uh, yeah. It's, it's so good. good. Yeah. Very good. It's, I it's mean, amazing yeah. that it's uh, the dreamlike thing also really, really is sort of supported by the structure of the movie and also the idea of like being woken up to do something really like menial, like, Oh, feeding mm. my cat. Oh, doing the thing I need to do to feed my cat. Like that's something that happens all the time in dreams. Like you're doing something really like menial labor, a thing you do all the time. You're taking a shower. You're like doing whatever in a, in a dream. And then it becomes like this wild, dramatic, you know, noir action thriller kind of thing. Like the plot feels like it meanders through all of those things. And it meanders through all of those tones. And that, really helps that sort of dreamlike energy yeah um god ah, boy <laughs> so uh one thing we haven't mentioned yet is that the screenplay for the long goodbye was written by lee brackett yeah uh who was also a uh, science fiction writer and oh. uh worked on also worked on the big sleep with humphrey bogart and oh. worked on an early draft of the empire strikes back and Amazing. She, she passed away before that film came out, but parts of her draft uh, made it into the movie. Interesting. Okay. So yeah. awesome. 
That's um, very cool. And uh, yeah, she was a very well-known science fiction writer. Um, and uh, yeah, that's uh, just wanted to mention her contributions to this movie. This movie has like so many diff- people's like imprints on them. And obviously, you know, it's a Altman directed it, but yeah. uh, also uh, Vilmos Zygmunt, who is the, uh, the cinematographer on this movie, yeah. uh, also worked on Close Encounters of the Third Kind and The Deer huh. Hunter. So Perfect. like a ton, yeah. a ton of talent in this movie. Um, and uh, yeah, there's one thing with the, the colors that are used. So Marlowe's tie is actually like American flag colors, but it just <laughs> looks red in the movie because of the oh. post-processing that uh, Zygmunt used. Um, huh. Which I don't yeah, know the- what it's called. I think it's called like post-flashing. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't have known that if you didn't say that, because, yeah, I just th- I always assumed it was red throughout the entire movie. Yeah, no, it's um, it, it has miniature American flags on it. Um, huh. Also, Altman directed the uh, the film with kind of this pastel look. He wanted it to look like postcards from the 1940s, and you kind of get some of that in one of the posters for the movie, which does have that kind of, like, well, like, or beautiful Hollywood or like yeah, wish you were yeah. here right. kind of vibe to it. Uh, which again also con- contributes to this, like, cause it, it doesn't feel like Southern California in terms of there being harsh lights everywhere. It's very, no. yeah, like very dreamy and vibey. Um, super soft. Yeah. So, uh, jumping around a bit, but I learned a bunch of things when I was rewatching this movie and, you know, researching it. So the guy who plays Terry Lennox, uh, his name is Jim Bouton, and he wasn't an actor. He was an MLB pitcher. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, And also an author and an activist. So he isn't in this movie a lot. And I don't know if it's something that you can kind of tell, but it's interesting. Like he was just this baseball player who happened to be in this movie for some reason. A lot of weird things like that, like the appearance of Arnold Schwarzenegger, um, like the fact that uh, Sterling Hayden was just like drunk all the time and so just had to like ad lib his dialogue. <laughs> yeah. Right. I it's, mean, it's very Altman. Like it, Altman mm. was very known for, and sadly he's not among us anymore. He died in the sort of mid 2000s. Mm-hmm. He was really known for these like big shots with lots of people and a lot of kind of moving cameras and like getting this element of pastiche in in most of the movies that he made are like most of the sort of like, Oh, fondly remembered classics. I forgot about Nashville. I, Nashville is also a, a classic, uh, but like there's a lot of movement and a lot of people and a lot of kind of stuff going on. And in the hands of a lesser director, I think it'd be a mess. Like, mm. Oh yeah, it sounds great to have a million things going on, but if, if you're not choreographing or sorry, choreographing it the right way, or, you know, really kind of like showcasing the right people in the right scene, uh, having tons of improv and tons of people running around can look like complete shit, but like he just makes it make so much sense. It, it does feel very much like a, a portrait or a painting as opposed to just like, well, I put a camera here and people did shit. Like it's yeah. it's very like a light touch, but a very deliberate touch, if that makes sense, which I always am like in awe of as somebody who's tried to ever do any of these little things. Like it's just incredible. It's like really, yeah. really amazing. It does. Uh, I think I see a lot of that and how like the skill that went into it during the scene uh, during the party where Dr. Veringer shows up. Oh, my um, God. Yes. 
which I maybe one of you can explain this to me a little bit better after this. But like, so Doctor Verringer is the like guy who runs the clinic where um, Wade goes to go dry out um, yeah. when he goes, you know, gets too bad. Um, and he's this very like Doctor Verringer is this very tiny little man with like um, red hair. Wade calls him like an albino at one point. Um, Wade himself is like six foot five, two hundred and twenty pounds, looks like Hemingway, <laughs> huge yep. beard. Um, and he, the scene is like Varinger just very like quietly walks up to Wade in the middle of a massive group of people that are all having like a very, what looks like a, to me, a very boring party, which is like <laughs> sure. a bunch of people on the beach, uh, sitting around drinking and talking about Hollywood things. And, uh, he very quietly asks him for $4,400 because that's what, um, he owes him. And then, you know, Wade is just like constantly shouting. I'm like, I don't like paying what I owe and stuff <laughs> like that. And Verringer reach, like literally has to like physically reach up like above his own head to slap him across the face and ask him for 4,400 bucks. And everyone in the scene, it was so weird to me because in that scene, I couldn't tell quite where the people in the party were going to. To land like were they going to freak out there was almost like this weird sort of oppressive energy that felt almost like a horror movie at, to me at a point because mm. I, I felt like oh these people are all like his patients and he's doing something weird to them at the clinic or whatever and they're all going <laughs> to turn on him and they're evil or something like that because they're all just staring and at him and watching this whole scene unfold without like I interacting or whatever and no what it turns out is that they're all just like you know weird strangers at this party who don't really care one way or the other and they're just there because being sociable is what you do if you live on a beach community i guess <laughs> but but because that scene is shot and framed the way that it is it feels like they are being surrounded by like a fucking midsummer style uh <laughs> group of people who are just gonna tear him apart limb from limb in a second um and i thought that scene was really really interesting partially just because also the you know very obvious imagery of having this very tiny man cow this very large man with a slap across the face was super interesting i still don't quite understand what veringer's role in all of this was was he just like helping uh terry and eileen with like cover up the murder like i i don't quite understand it oh i don't think that he was involved in that stuff i think he just uh, is like a shitty doctor who's like okay you have yeah. been paying me to like stay at my weird treatment center um i feel like there's a second movie going on with that guy and yeah, what he's yeah. doing to his patients no yeah for sure um yeah that stuff is is pretty weird um i would say it's that very that is hollywood like, yeah. yeah it's like well, a very very la hollywood kind yeah of thing I think. I think it kind of serves to just like illustrate the weird like lives of these rich people mm. in yeah. hollywood of just like they're going to these like fancy detox centers and uh, just like involved with like these bizarre kind of quack doctors and stuff. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, maybe that does just. I think it does both the the thing of just, and this is probably just a a, a very dumb comparison because. I'm sure Blue Velvet is extremely influenced by this movie as well. It feels like it probably is in terms of like mm. just being a neo-noir movie. I don't know if either of you, I'm sure you probably have seen Blue Velvet. That's another one where not. I've seen like oh. four scenes from it, but I've never seen the whole. I have a lot of movies where I have very distinct memories of watching scenes of the movie, but not the whole thing. 
but yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's just like another neo-noir movie that takes place. That one is more of a, whereas this one I feel like is often a subversion of like the much more traditional noir experience and, yeah. um, you know, Hollywood and big city kind of detectives. Blue Velvet is that, but, but for like showing the rot in like suburban life and oh, like small yeah. town areas and stuff. Yeah, for sure, um, for sure. And that movie does a good job of, like, setting up just, like, there are just these weird sort of side characters that exist that have their own, like, weird side businesses and lives and stuff like that because this is all just part of a larger system of not always corruption, but, like, just very strange, like, interpersonal relationships between shitty people. And this feels very much like something that I would expect in Blue Velvet. Obviously, Blue Velvet came out, like, 20 years after this movie did, so... Only, like, I, 10, actually. Yeah, like, like 10. that okay. was like mid eighties. This is early seventies, so like twelve, I think, ish years. Okay. Uh, maybe afterwards, thirteen but, years. Okay, yeah, eighty six. Yeah. Okay, but even so, I would just say like, oh, Blue Velvet probably just like pulls a lot from this movie. It's just I happened to see that one first, so I can't help but compare it to this yeah. uh, constantly. So yeah, it's it's just a really interesting thing that I feel like. You know, in another movie, we would have gotten, like, a big perfect explanation about what was going on there exactly, whereas this time it just adds more to a general sense of scale for the world and also at the same time adds more to the dreamlike quality because it's never fully explained. Yeah. But uh, that's just me. No, that's fair. I mean, I love noir. Like, I'm a big kind of... uh, I, I used to go to the, you know, there was a San Francisco film noir film festival that used to be very fun for me to go to as a fucking dork. Um, it's just, it's really interesting. It really kind of highlights a lot of the sort of sexual politics uh, of the times, like of the 40s and 50s, and a lot of the sort of fears of the times. And it's also just kind of always interesting. There are very few really boring noir movies. Like, obviously, if something wasn't well produced, it's... It, be super boring but it's a genre that is really malleable and it's really really interesting always to see what different directors in different eras have done with it uh blue velvet i mean is like a really like that's kind of a movie about kink and sadomasochism and all that kind of stuff that like again is being explored in like the lens of a very like noir-ish uh good and evil are very very obvious and distinct kind of way uh, so there's like things about it that don't super work, but it's also fucking fascinating. Uh, and watching anything noir related now feels like odd and satisfying. Uh, but this one, it feels different from all of them. This one feels so much funnier and more melodramatic than uh, so many other sort of examples of noir. Like this is a really deeply funny movie. And I just wanted to briefly mention one of my favorite parts of the whole thing, mm-hmm. which is the security guard who yeah. does impressions. Oh my God. Uh, it was just like, it's just such a funny fucking one off. Not one off. Like it, it happens a couple of times and it does show that Marlo is, is actually pretty smart, even though he's kind of a giant dipshit. I, I think he plays up his dipshittery because he uses the security guard at one point. One of the like minor goons uh, has been tasked Harry. with like, yeah, Harry <laughs> has been tasked with, like, keeping him, uh, keeping watch over him, basically. And he kind of, like, bullshits with Harry for a while and then goes to the security guard, you know, drives out of the complex. And he's like, oh, yeah, this guy's a big fan of, God, who is it? Um, 
I, I, I want to get it right. Uh, Walter Brennan. He's like, oh, he's a big fan of Walter Brennan. You give him some good Walter Brennan. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and the security guard is just like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And like hamming it up, doing his like dumbass impression. And Harry's just like, what, what the hell are you talking about? And like, Walter Brennan? It, it keeps him, it, it like strategically keeps him from being right on uh, Marlowe's tail. So it is actually this really God. intelligent note of his to do. Like, oh, yeah. He's kind of like using his tools, which are bullshitting and goofiness to sort of like outsmart the, you know, the the young goon. God, oh, just Harry, very, very though. Fun. Harry, like Marlo's giving him tips and is just like, mm-hmm. yep. hey, don't you know you're not supposed to let me see you? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, he like gives him tips. I love it. It's so goofy. It's so He good. writes down the address of yeah. the place he's going before he's supposed to tail him. <laughs> he's trying to help um, him out. <laughs> There's, it, but it also like I think that speaks to a lot of the like the kind of like emotional intelligence and just like general cunning of the character throughout a lot of this too because we get a lot of scenes where he's just constantly making these tiny little. Uh, it's never commented on. Nobody ever says like, "Ah, oh, this is one of your strengths." It's never like laid out that right <laughs> specifically. But he's constantly building these tiny little relationships with complete strangers, with like by just <laughs> yeah. like saying kind words to people in bad situations. Like the person who gives him the cat food, he runs into him again later. They're both getting booked oh, yeah. at the police station at right. the same time, getting taken down different hallways, and they like pull away from each other a little bit to like have a conversation. And the the dude is like talking about how they were at a protest, like a civil rights protest yeah. i guess um and he the guy is in prison because he had to punch a cop that punched his girlfriend yep. <laughs> and, and he's like telling him it's like you be safe you know you get out of here and he like has this other conversation with his cellmate oh at the place God, where he's just guy. like telling him yeah yep. <laughs> <laughs> and he's just building all these like little relationships with like the normal people the, like the the while the kind of um movers and shakers of this world are basically all the bad guys and all mm-hmm. b- are revealed to be yeah. evil in one capacity or another um he is constantly building relationships with the like you know service industry workers and people who are in prison for possession and are and have opinions about you know getting arrested for possession right. and how it's a bad thing ah this mm, god he rules like mar like marlo mm-hmm. this version of marlo specifically like i've read the big sleep i also like that book a lot despite having some problems with it <laughs> because of uh like some rampant homophobia in the big sleep the, yeah. the novel anyway yeah um this version of marlo is just so fucking likable and he Oh, one of my other notes here is just I would watch an entire TV series based on this dude. Like, give me four seasons of this version of Philip Marlowe today. Mm -hmm. Holy shit, I would watch that. Like, have Harry be a recurring character that is just working for a different (laughs) goon every week or something like that. That'd be so good. I I love that idea. That's very fun. NBC, hire me. Yeah, I know, right? I mean, the only problem is there wouldn't be Elliot Gould. That would be. That is true. Yeah, that's the only sad thing. Like, I don't know who could, who could do this because this movie, again, like really, really stylistically, it could potentially work because Altman's direction is so strong. But without Elliot Gould, I don't know if this movie is great. <laughs> Maybe it's good, but I don't know if it's great in this yeah. way. Like this, it belongs so much to him and this performance and this like ability. I mean, I know he's still uh, with us. It's just he's he's 81, so it wouldn't be the same exact character. He's a little old. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, He's getting up yeah. there. But you know what? There's got to be people. There's got to be people. Yeah. There's, There's somebody who could do it. He could show up I mean, as like a, you know, 
and someone else. Like I like when they do that, like give them a fun yeah. cameo. Yeah, sure. that'd be cool. Yeah. Uh, my my brain just immediately goes here because it's like the A to B to C because <laughs> this version of uh, Philip Marlowe clearly inspired Spike Spiegel and Spike Spiegel is being played by John Cho in the new um, Cowboy Bebop uh, live action series. So like my brain just immediately goes to him, but like also um, <laughs> he's currently injured, I believe. So I don't know if that's really an option. He, but yeah. yeah, he he hurt himself pretty badly, but I could see that. Yeah, yeah. Like he could I he could, could handle it. He, yeah, he would have to play. Yeah, he would have to play a little more like a, a Harold's kind of character, but like older, yeah. like be like, Hey, say Harold's grew up and became a private eye. Like, right. <laughs> yeah. And is also extremely tired. Can you do that? <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh huh. Um, yeah. But uh, you know, part of this is just my illiteracy with. Actors no, and that would be fun. That would be fun. Though. No, I think he'd be good. I yeah, love, it's like a good I love pull. those kinds of like weird connections. Yeah. Very much. Same. I think there's like there should be a term like there should be a name for a, like a pleasure that comes from making certain connections like, oh, they were in this movie and they also not like the Kevin Bacon thing, but much more of a like, oh, and this person did the music and this person like the way in which people make up a beautiful stew of like a wonderful creative project and like how bits of that DNA are in other places. I want there to be a name for this, like that particular mm. pleasure of finding out something really cool from something that you love connects with something else that you, you know, really enjoyed. Okay. I, I guess we should get on that. Uh, let's make a term for it. One yeah. Day. Let's, let's make an entire podcast where each <laughs> week we just draw connections between different things that we like. Oh, hey, it's just it's, we'll just know. call it two things. Two things. Two there things. we go. It's just two, two things. things. A podcast by Fanbyte Media. <laughs> <laughs> Philip Marlowe, right. but he's Pickle Rick. Okay, funny right. shit I've ever heard. All right. Yeah, he turns himself into a fucking pickle. <laughs> oh my god! I love that uh, when you search for me on the internet, the third picture that comes up is Philip Marlowe <laughs> because that's amazing. Anyone who follows me on Twitter may realize that that has been my avatar for like, I think at least a year um, because he is so cool. (laughs) And also a lot of people, it turns out, have not seen this movie and think that I am uh, Elliot Gould from 1973 um, and are just like, hey, you look at this guy. He's uh, smoking a cigarette. Like, it's like. Mm, I wish, but like, right? I'm afraid. Everybody not. just knows how cool you are. I'm and afraid, so not. they immediately pick up on it. Yeah, that's what yeah. it is. That's God. what it is. Yeah. Anyway, uh, great movie. I could talk yeah. about this movie all day. It is, um, one of my favorite movies. Again, I also just dropped. There are so many weird posters for this movie. Like there are some that are just like, yeah, the Japanese one is just him holding a gun and looking cool. There's a, <laughs> an English one where it's just like, I have two friends in the world. One's a cat. The other is a murderer where it's like him smoking a cigarette with like a really like, what's the name of that guy who drew those really like freaked out cats. Oh, I you know, know what I'm talking about where it <laughs> no. was like, um, it was like, he was like, uh, his brain was degenerating maybe, or that was the story. I don't think that's actually true, but like he drew like increasingly fucked up looking cats. Um, there's a cat oh, that looks Jordan like that. Saying Lewis Wayne. Yes. 
Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you, producer Jordan Mallory for... Yes, uh, Louis Wayne. Uh, thank you. There's a poster with a cat on his shoulders that looks like that. And then there's the one that I just dropped in the Discord, which is just fucking caricatures of every character in the movie as Robert Altman is explaining every character. Like... Uh-huh. And just like, hi, I'm Robert Altman. This is my new movie. And it's just like all of this text that you would like, it would have to be like in a movie theater or something because there's no way that you could like walk past this and read any of it because it's so small. Yeah. It's so strange. And Marlo is holding a can of cat food that says C-A-T for cat and then food, (laughs) but spelled Mm P-H-O-O-D. The doctor is actually slapping, is like mid slap of uh yeah of roger <laughs> and he's holding um, a big sunflower for some reason uh roger's got a bottle of jack daniels in one hand and his cane in the other yeah. so weird oh my god uh marty has the coke bottle he's got and the his bottle i was gonna say it's a lot right there oh my god this is yeah. so dark like this the more you look at it the more you realize how fucked up this picture is it's a pretty fucked up picture oh my god um yeah i will say that i after watching this movie uh immediately just went to like my library app and just started like uh putting in orders for um other philip marlowe books and for the day yep. curse uh the other dashwell hammett continental op full novel mm. that i haven't read yet um because i just like God damn, it just reminded me, like, oh, man, I really, really like this particular style of, like, detective story with this particular, with these particular politics and stuff like that. Like, especially, I think, because of the 70s lens on a lot of this stuff um, and being so, like, pretty, pretty blatantly. It kind of goes away midway through the movie, but, like, because it just doesn't become a factor, but pretty blatantly anti-cop for most of it. And I'm just remembering how in uh, Red Harvest, um, the first Continental Op, like, full novel length story um all everyone in the the entire town that the continental op the name of the detective is sent to is bad including the cops and like the first bit of action in that entire story is him shooting a cop to death (laughs) Uh, (laughs) yeah in a bar uh but uh which also mm, yeah i know we don't want to talk too much about the ending but it's just like it's so interesting to me that this is also a movie that has like no gunplay in it whatsoever almost yeah. Like, oh, at yeah. no point is it, except for one scene, there's, like, nobody even pulls a gun, which is so weird for, like, a yeah, detective story. Yeah, I think story. one yeah. bullet is fired in this entire movie, is that right? Yeah. It's at the end. Yeah. I, like I said, I don't even think we see a gun at any other point. Yeah. It's it's pretty rare. Yeah. Yeah, huh. no, I'm trying to think about it now, and I'm like, yeah, I don't, like, all of the 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 threats and, like, the confrontations are all kind of like implied or um, yeah, no one's like reaching for a gun in this. Um, no, which is, it's an interesting choice. And like, yeah, the one time, like the, the bullet, the one bullet that's fired is like the period at the end of the movie. Right. Yeah. That's a yeah. really good way to describe it. And it has so, 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 so much more. And like, this is a, a very surface level read, but it is so. It has so much more impact by virtue of being the only bullet fired in the entire movie. Yeah, yeah, it's startling. Yeah, nothing says goodbye like a bullet. That's uh, <laughs> that's true. That's on many of the posters for this movie as a quote yeah. from Philip Marlowe, which I don't 
I think he says that <laughs> in this movie, but maybe he does in the uh, in the book. Because also, oh, like, maybe. the movie makes a lot of changes from the book. Oh, I bet. Um, yeah. And it would almost have Altman to. Didn't actually, Altman didn't read the book. Um, ah! Yeah, he read, like, the collected essays, I think, of, uh, yeah. of uh, Chandler. But, yeah, so... Um, but again, Marlowe is pretty weird in the books. And I think I think The Big Sleep is the only uh, Marlowe story I've read, but I enjoyed it. I liked that character a lot more than like Sam Spade. And yeah. um, I should really read the Continental Op stuff too. Oh, um, Red Harvest is so good. Oh, nice. Um, I'm, curr- um, I'm on uh, Nero Wolf right now, who is, mm. uh, for people who aren't familiar, he is just this huge dude who never leaves his apartment and uh, solves, <laughs> runs a detective agency by just having a bunch of dudes who like do legwork for him and is just like the smartest man in the world and drinks beer constantly um, and grows flowers. Don't they, wasn't there a whole thing with Nero, this is a, this is a tangent, but isn't there a whole thing about like how Nero Wolf is like the descendant of Sherlock Holmes or something like that? There may be, I've only read a few of the stories, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's quite possible. Okay. Um, yeah, there's some good detective fiction out there. We don't get a ton of it in movies basically at all anymore. I think we've talked about this a lot with a very early episode of You Love to See It, which was um, Knives Out. Yeah. Uh, just people kind of... I feel like at some point Hollywood decided that, like, nope, you can't do that anymore. And then people just kind of, like, did it. <laughs> and it worked out very well because Knives Out made a lot of money for not very much money. Uh, yeah. But yeah. uh, I would love to see like a return of some of this stuff, just like more variety in movies in general. But it's also just nice. What I love about it, you love to see it a lot of time is it introduces me to a lot of genres that I slept on just because like they weren't introduced to me in my household. And sure. this is a very good example of one of those. And just like remembering, oh, yeah, people just used to make all kinds of different style of movie. It wasn't <laughs> yeah. just the same three movies made right, uh, yeah. every five minutes. Yeah. Um, and although, like, no, oh, sorry. sorry go, go ahead, Daniel. I was just going to say, I, I also want to make the recommendation on the other side to watch more Robert Altman movies. Yes. <laughs> like, I, I definitely would recommend the MASH, uh, the film, not the show, whatever. Uh, it has obviously a lot of tonal similarities and so on and so forth. But the movie is really good and also has a lot of sort of tonal stuff going on. I think it was an early, it was even a few years before this uh, it was one of Altman's kind of first features, I think. So yeah. it kind of establishes a lot of his style. And I'm also, I'm almost positive it was one of the first uses of fuck in a feature length movie that oh. like had wide release. Not that that, like, that's not what makes it good. It's just like one of those facts that I remember from we, like, oh, blah, 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 you know, just really cool stylistically interesting stuff. Again, the ensemble cast, a lot of that shooting style is, is still there. Very different type of movie, but I, I just, God, I just love seeing directors tackle different genres. Uh, I know I keep saying this, but I, it's so fun for me to see, like, somebody's style adapted to radically different structures. It's, like, just, like, food for the brain for me. Very, very yeah. fun. Yeah. The only bit of trivia I know about the MASH movie is I think oh, it was Robert Oh, the Michael Altman, Altman thing? The 14-year-old yes. who wrote the lyrics? Yeah. Yes, yep. that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a whole ass thing. Uh, super briefly, uh, I think it was the composer's son or something. He's like, just write some lyrics for this. And then, of course, it ended up being a smash. Uh, you know, the, the movie happened and then it was like a smash hit TV series. And so he, he earned royalties for years and years and years. 
making the song, and the song's name is Suicide is Painless. Uh, and I, the yeah. way I always heard it told was like he specifically asked him for like just write the most fucking dog shit lyrics. Just write you can whatever. Think of. Yeah, it's his teenage son. Like you just like write whatever, dude. Whatever, I don't care. And like yeah, it's one of those. <laughs> Uh, but Mash um, the movie is is really really interesting and and well done and yeah again more Altman style uh, stuff I would love to watch that someday for you love to see it I know we we probably have to go back to other shit sometimes <laughs> uh, and we keep we, I keep joking that we watched so many bad things in the last few weeks uh, which is not to say obviously good bad and weird was awesome but yeah I, I love it when we watch really good movies <laughs> it makes me happy. Yeah, I'm glad that I, I'm so, like, I think I started off by saying this, but I'm so glad, I, Merit, you introduced me to this movie, because this is, like, easily one of my now top five favorite movies of all time as well. Oh, hell yeah. Awesome. I'm so glad. I'm so glad to be able to share this movie. Um, because, yeah, it's it's one of my faves. And wait, did we? We didn't do Nightmare Part 2, right, for the show? No. Not yet. Because okay. no. that yet. is, not yet. We are going to at some point. Mm-hmm. That's, that's going to be a doozy of an episode. Yes. I've never seen a Nightmare on Elm Street movie all the way through. Oh, wow. Yeah. The first three are worth watching. Isn't the, <laughs> isn't the, the people like the Dream Warriors? Yes. Yeah, that's the like third later one. ones. Okay. That's three, the third. Oh. Yeah. three is the one that um, I think most people really love. I really love two. Two is an incredibly fucked up movie and like the making of it is, I mean, you can watch Scream Queen for the full story of that one. Yeah. Mm. But uh, yeah, I'm looking at my favorite films list on Letterboxd and it's right now, at least it's this Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. Have we done Lost Boys? We've not. not We've not. Oh my God. We should do it during the summer. uh, We should do that as a summer one for sure. Maybe yeah. that's a scream it one because that's a scary movie. <laughs> it is. Uh, yeah. It is. Yeah. <laughs> just a little bit. Uh, just, just a little terrifying. Also a movie. That is at least a movie I've seen many times as a child. I've not seen oh. it as an adult. I only watched The Lost Boys as a oh, child. You're oh, you're Lost Boys? Oh, I was talking about Night of the Hunter, but. Oh, I missed you saying that. Sorry. I thought we were still on Lost Boys. Oh, Lost Boys, yeah. Lost Boys is not really that scary. Um, no, that's why I, th- I thought you were joking. <laughs> yeah, same. <laughs> I, 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 I was like... Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, no. Incredible. Incredible, incredible movie. Night of the Hunter, holy shit. I've, yeah. I've heard of this movie, but I've never I've never seen it either. I it's gotta, it's so a many lot. Movies. It's like a precursor, frankly, in a lot of ways, at least sort of stylistically, uh, to uh, like slashers. And like yeah. really, really terrifying uh, male like monster figures, like really, really intense. Yeah. It's just—it's like they—they they just made so many movies. Like they I made a lot. Fewer <laughs> they made a lot. I, you know. Yeah, and so some of them were great. Like, <laughs> the thing to remember is there's a lot of bad early movies as well. Like there's a lot of absolute shit. Like I don't think there are necessarily like thing generalizations you can make about quality in any era frankly like maybe you can for very very tiny slices of time like for example this is a funny tweet about like oh pick your favorite movie that came out when you were 18 and like frankly 2002 was a dark time for everything in the world so like there's a few Mm -hmm. good movies from then but whatever again those are like tiny one-offs but like yeah forever there have been incredible groundbreaking and then also not groundbreaking but incredibly well done movies and then a lot of schlocky shit uh as well so like yeah there's just a lot movies hey movies they've been made since the 19 
Well, feature length movies have been made since what, 1905? Yeah, I saw that one movie that in <laughs> high school. I watched that one where they go to the moon by shooting a big gun at it. And that's what my students oh. are doing this week, actually. Really, they, I, I, the day they, I can't tell the day you how many moon. essays. <laughs> yeah, the day they, the day the they killed it the right moon. through its eye. Yeah, it hurt. <laughs> Uh, just the, That's 1902, um, actually. Just the space gun m- uh, meme, but they're pointing the gun at the moon, you know? Yep. It's like, wait, uh-huh. I was the moon the whole time? And he's like, yeah, always was. Always was, bro. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think we that. could. Do we want to stop after that? Yeah, <laughs> well, that's a good I will place say to this. stop. I, I, I just want to say one brief, brief, brief thing. Journey uh, to the moon is actually great. That one, if you ever, it's on YouTube. You can just look it up. It's only a few minutes long. Actually, really fun to watch. The set design is amazing. So if there Mm. is one silent film from the very, very early 1900s that you ever want to watch, that one's one's one of the ones that actually holds up and is very fun to watch. I have said my piece. The film teacher will shut up now. (laughs) Right. Well, I think think that'll do it for us on this episode if you love to see it. Go to fanbyte.com slash podcasts to hear more of our shows and follow us on Twitter at Fanbyte Media. You can find Danielle on Twitter at Danielle RI. You can find Steven on Twitter at Steven Strom. And I am on Twitter at Merritt K. Is uh Beautiful. Yeah, is that it's is that it? Is there anything else? Yeah, I think um, so. Unless I you want like to talk about uh, you know, just going to the streams over on twitch.tv slash fanbyte and uh we're on TikTok and TikTok, not TikTok. Whoa, where did that come from? TikTok and Instagram at Fanbyte. And I just like to give a more formal shout out to one Jordan Mallory, the podcast <laughs> producer who uh, does all of our shows now and is the chief reason that so many of our shows now sound way fucking better than they used to. <laughs> Uh, specifically the episodes produced by me you will notice uh, have seen a considerable bump in quality and also the episodes featuring me and my voice because I didn't know things such as maybe I should turn my gain down slightly (laughs) which uh, has helped a lot I think so thank you Jordan thank you Jordan thank you yeah alright well I guess uh, yeah um, yeah. until next time it's okay with me (laughs) 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 Bye. Bye.